off point of today's message, but relevant to every message, I want to say vision of this house is contained in the brief, powerful commission Jesus gave us in Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, when he said, make disciples of all the nations by going into the world. The operative verb in that great commission is make disciples. Going is secondary to that. That's important because making disciples is what we're called to do whether we stay or go, <laughs> wherever we are. It relates to that same principle. I, I love that little phrase. stands out to me, the phrase, in every place. 2 Corinthians 2, 14, where I think very timely today for many people, whatever you may be going through, as Justin touched on in the worship time, 2 Corinthians 2, 14, thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ Jesus and makes manifest the fragrance of Jesus by us, and here's that phrase, in every place. Could you say aloud with me three words, in every place, in every place. So we think about that because the Great Commission is an in every place calling and assignment for us, and the primary thrust and vision within the life of this congregation is to honor and live out and, and express that the essence of that Great Commission. And of course, that Great Commission goes on, and it includes the teaching uh, the, of the Word of God. Jesus was comprehensive in it, teaching them all things that I have taught you, and lo, I am with you always to the ends of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So the entire thing together wraps up a holistic picture of congregational life. And one of the most beautiful things about it is that it fits every culture. It's worded in such a way that, that there's no angular or awkward um, appendages to it that only fit in one culture but don't fit in another culture. No, the Great Commission is perfectly framed to touch every aspect of life in congregations across the globe, across the centuries, across the cultures. So that's one of the reasons why that we believe that every single Sunday morning you can start anew. Maybe you've had a difficult time somewhere. Maybe there's been a hurt. Maybe there's been a disappointment. This does anticipate our message today to some degree. But I'm just impressed today to say, let's remember the Great Commission Jesus gave us is effervescent, evergreen, ever alive, always calling us and moving us forward in our lives. And it applies to all of us, making disciples. Well, today we're going to be talking about something that happens to lots of people in life in many different ways, and that is finding ourselves in one way or another, finding ourselves on a slippery slope. When we find ourselves on a slippery slope, we are on the verge of missing out on God's purpose in that tough situation. Now, many people are watching the Olympics, of course, and, and one of the things that's always intriguing and inspiring is the degree to which 
individuals train and prepare and, and rigorously get into the game. In uh, Runner's World magazine in uh, 1991, the story of a 1992 Olympic, um, uh, 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 Olympic runner by the name of Beth Ann DeCantis was a powerful example of how close we can come to feeling defeated and how just how amazing it is when you find yourself in a place where you're beginning to slip to gain the encouragement that can come from others. The story of Beth Ann DeCantis is amazing. A female runner has to compete in the 26-mile, 385-yard race in two hours, 45 minutes to compete at the Olympic trials. Beth started strong but began having trouble around mile 23. She reached the final straightaway at 2 minutes 43 seconds with just 2 minutes left to qualify. 200 yards from the finish, she stumbled and fell. She stumbled and fell. We're going to see in the Psalms how a most godly and faithful follower of the Lord can find himself or herself in that place where they're near stumbling. In the case of Ruth of Bethan DeCantis, she was dazed. She stayed down for 20 seconds. The crowd yelled, get up! The clock was ticking. 44 seconds, less than a minute to go. Bethan staggered to her feet and began walking. Five yards short of the finish, with 10 seconds to go, she stumbled and fell again. She began to crawl, the crowd cheering her on. As Beth crossed the finish line on her hands and knees, her time, 2 hours, 14 minutes, 57 seconds. For Beth Ann DeCantis, the encouragement, the voices of people cheering her on, must have had something to do with that uh, near miss of a great opportunity and achievement in her life. If you open your Bible to the 73rd Psalm, I think you'll see that in, a, in the dimension of our life and our walk with Christ, that we all can recognize times where we are on the verge of slipping or stumbling. And as you think about this, you realize that, first of all, the psalm begins on a note of the psalmist expressing a timeless and continuous confidence source that he held in his heart. And that source, that uh, continuous awareness, was the fact that God is good. You see that in your Bible today, that God is good. Would you say it aloud with me? God is good. And so when you think about it this way, you realize that there are times in your life where we're all going to be on a play, in a place where we find ourselves struggling to get our footing. So when you think about it like this, and you realize how Asaph, the psalmist, and incidentally, Asaph becomes a father of, of, a, of an entire 
band, a team of writers that through the coming centuries would be identified as those who were sharing responsibility of compiling and keeping these records of the expressions of praise and the expressions of prayer in the hearts of people. And so these words in Psalm 73.1, I think of as a kind of, a, of an anchor in the heart of a follower of God. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And as I think about this, I, I'm, I'm struck by this opening verse and the opening dilemma. And you see it in your own Bible where the Bible says, but as for me, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Now, what I'd like to ask you to think about as a slippery slope could be any number of emotional uh, dilemmas that a person finds himself or herself in. And that could be something that came from disillusionment, discouragement, despair, distress, disaster, um, the brokenness of a dream or an expectation. But whatever the in, whatever started that, there is, a, there is a security and a confidence in God that the child of God keeps in his or her heart. In the case of the 73rd Psalm, this is contained in expressions that we'll see here with some samples in the psalm. And they show us that what is really remarkable in all of the psalms is how God gives us insight into the reality of the human heart in such a way that he directly addresses our deepest needs and problems. And as you think about Psalm 73, you, you see here one of the psalms that is in a collection of the 12 psalms in the Asaph collection. And in this number of psalms, in these that were penned by Asaph, there is an awareness of the, uh, the connection between our daily struggle and the reality of who God is. And in that connection, the psalmist gives us some treasures of authentically expressing our need. Now, where the second verse puts us <laughs> is on a slippery slope. So when I think about it this way, I'm reminded um, of how vital it is that we bring the truth of the Word of God into the reality of those places where we struggle. And it's, it's striking to me in the wording, the, the first words of that second verse. But as for me... When we look at how the, the entire struggle of, of, every, of every believer in their life daily to come to an awareness of how God's word touches every area of our lives, we all need a bit of diagnosis. We can all find ourselves having poured our energy into the race like that runner in 1992, and we can understand that 
all of us can come to a place where suddenly what felt secure is no longer feeling secure. And the, the, the phrase of as for me is a, is a particular focus, I think, on what happens in this psalm that leads us to a connection I want to make with one of the most intriguing examples of how Jesus addressed discouragement in the Bible. Now, the result of this is that we can come out of times of vulnerability stronger, more confident, more assured, more specific in our focus than ever before. And, and yet, in order to do that, we have to have a realistic assess assessment. In the text, back in Psalm 73, I think it's really interesting that the way that, uh, that this psalmist describes nearly slipping <laughs> was described in verse 3, and it goes through verse 9, how that it looked like people who are exercising evil, people who are wicked, people who are pursuing their own way in life and often damaging other people, that they seem to get away with it. So the, so the discouragements in his life, as they can be in your life, are deepened by disappointments that seem to have no answer. Just look at the text a little more closely, and you see it's, there's a, a sense of, of futility that is reflected in the verses 3 through 9. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. What a, what a vivid expression in that last part of verse 9. The arrogance, the audacity, the insolence of those who function with no fear of God before their eyes, and it is capsulized in the end of that ninth verse as, as arrogant words. They, their tongue struts through the earth. <laughs> there's, a, there's, almost a, there's, there's almost a sense of absurdity even in the illustration or the, the figure of speech. Like, a, like somebody's tongue disembodied from their mouth, strutting around like a peacock. And yet that, that is, uh, that somewhat uh, comical image is what is often happening in our culture today. And, and, and what, what I'd like to do today is to think about how easily Christians can get themselves on a slippery slope of despair. And what happens so often is not, not that Christians have never heard a message about encouragement or that they are unaware that discouragement will come. No, what happens is, as, as almost as dramatically as that, as Beth Ann DeCanis in those final fleeting seconds when she stumbled again, and only had uh, less than 20 seconds left to get across that line, 
There comes a point in many Christians' lives where layer upon layer upon layer of discouragement brings them to that slippery slope moment where they feel like, as the psalmist said in verse 2, as for me, if you ask about me right now, I'm about to slip. I'm about to lose my footing. And there's no more scary uh, experience than suddenly your foot slipping out from under you. That just the, the knowledge you have, completely no control. And I and when we began this month, we're looking at <laughs> things that the enemy seeks to take away. Those the danger of of the thievery of our adversary. And and we looked at uh, for two Sundays about this dynamic of internal faith. How does that faith rise? How is that faith expressed? How is that faith exercised? And how is that faith matured? And this psalm, and then in the New Testament we'll be looking at Matthew 11, I think gives us a, a wonderful insight into this. What I would hope we could take away initially is that the Psalm 73, as many other places in Scripture, snapshots for us that God gives us an accurate diagnosis of the human heart and nothing catches your heavenly Father by surprise. It also helps us realize, as, as Beth Ann DeCantis benefited from in that, in that fierce competition, it helps us realize there are people along the sides. We may not hear their voices, but there are people cheering you on. And maybe one of the hardest things to deal with is when you don't hear those voices and you're not aware of that and you feel as if the loneliness and the isolation is becoming overpowering. In that situation, you could, as uh, Asaph did, say, as for me, I am exhausted. As for me, I am disillusioned. And we see a kind of a rash of this in the whole social media re realm today where, where, where people are, are blaming their, their, um, their churches, they're blaming Christianity, they're blaming the heritage of truth that they've received from others for their complications and contradictions in life which are all addressed beautifully in the Word of God. Now, what I'd like to say is, with all empathy, with all compassion, with all understanding of how discouraging it can be when Christians fail, when Christian organizations fail, when Christian leaders fail, when Christian expressions don't really get to the heart of, of what is really going on in a person's life. It's tempting for people for their foot to slip. And they be just begin to say, I'm going to just deconstruct. <laughs> no, what we need to do is to repent of our own neglect of the Word of God and open our hearts and our minds and our, and our understanding afresh to things that we may have skimmed over but never really grasped how beautifully God's Word addresses our needs. And this is why 
I think it's really helpful. I know it's I know you kind of have to reach back into the, into the past here a little bit, but I think it's really helpful sometimes to draw from the words of hymn writers because not only the beauty of the poignancy of their wording, but also because even the hymn we sang this morning, Fairest Lord Jesus, O Thou of God, uh, 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 o thou of, God and of Man the Son. When we, re when we sing or reflect on some of these really classic expressions of faith, we, we see another thing that was also true in the case of Beth Ann DeCantis in that Olympic competition, and that is there are voices we're not hearing because they're not in our generation, and yet they walk the same path. This is one of the beautiful things about the Great Commission. It, is, it, it unites us not only across the globe, but across the centuries. Many other followers of Jesus have faced often more intense struggle and heartache and disappointment than you have. And in every aspect of this, what comes out to me so clearly is the magnitude and the beauty of who Jesus is. In a great uh, uh, hymn, Does Jesus Care? The writer says, As the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long, does Jesus care? Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. There is so much more there that cannot even begin to do justice to. But one of the ways to do justice to it is to also realize that throughout the epistles, we just finished our Ephesians series in June, and, and, and uh, in the second letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, in, a, in his epistles, often described the human side of the extremity of pressure that came about because of this, because of the magnitude and power and glory of who Jesus, our risen Lord, is. Paul said these things, and I'm just capturing one little piece of it, these things are so insignificant compared to the magnitude of the Lord Jesus being glorified and worshipped and his word going forth. What did Paul say right here in 2 Corinthians 4, 8? He said, he said we, the apostolic missionary team that Paul was, was the leader of, he says we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we are not crushed. <laughs> the psalmist, he could echo what Asaph said in Psalm 73, my foot had almost stumbled, my foot almost slipped, but, but, now back in your text to verse 17 of Psalm 73, look what he says after walking through this. He says, but then I went into the sanctuary of the Lord, and I understood their final end. Would you see that in your Bible in Psalm 73, 17, that, that this is a kind of a, this is a moment of, of understanding. Think of it. It dawns on the brain of Asaph. And in his case, it's a physical temple. In our case, it is, it is going to that place where our entire attention is refocused on who God is. So the, the psalmist in Psalm 73, 17 says, 
<laughs> all of this troubled me. All of this was so difficult until I went into the sanctuary and I understood. I understood. Now, I hope that today what we could, what we could go home with today would just be a kind of a taste of that. And, 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 and to do it, I want to give you just a little more of this psalmist here. And look at, look at it with me. You'll find it in the 24th verse, but it's on the screen. As, as psalmist Asaph deals with this contradiction, why does it look like the wicked get away with so much without answering for it? And I'm pursuing godliness. I'm pursuing virtue. I'm pursuing what honors God it looks to me like they're, when they, when they zoom by me in their, in their uh, fancy chariot, so to speak, and I'm, and I'm just kind of, uh, you know, pr- plodding along, it looks like the contradiction looks so real when you're in that place of why do the wicked prevail? And so after he goes into the sanctuary of God in verse 17, he perceives, surely he doesn't understand every question, of course not but he perceives in the dwelling place of Almighty God. I understood. I understood. My friend, of all the things I love to see happen in this congregation, the best, the best is when in some way in your life, whether it's in worship or, or it's, it's in this time that we're together in the Word or, or it's, it's at some time, a quiet time of prayer, or it's in your Walk with God, something that crosses your path. When suddenly you understand, the light comes on and you say, oh, I understand. Now, now I get it. So after he does this, in verse 24, he says this. Read it aloud with me together from the screen. He says to the Lord, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. This assurance that the one who was on the edge of that thing, and and boy, that foot was just about to slip. Back in verse 2, is now saying, Lord, in your dwelling place I see that I need you more than I ever realized I need you. And to know the real God requires that we get stripped away from our false and preferred notions of God and that we experience a connection with what the Word of God teaches us. It's amazing how this psalm, like many, reflects the the precision of God's Word. That God's Word addresses us at the point of our need, but we have to be engaged in a place of listening, of responding, of seeking to acknowledge that we don't know as much as we think we know. And then a kind of an emotional and we might even say physiological result of this is that the 26th verse, the psalmist goes on to say, now here's a conclusion we might put it this way, my flesh and my heart may fail. Let's Pause for a moment and think of that verse. He's referring to the human apparatus, isn't he? Heart and flesh. He's referring to that about us which is strictly human, right? Like Paul's wording in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says, 
we have this treasure in earthen vessels. So we might say, we might think of it like this, that my heart and my flesh, oh, I got way, way, way ahead there, yes. My heart and my flesh may fail. My heart and my flesh may fail. This is like um, my earthen vessels, the human part of me. And yet, what, is it, what else does he say? But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So here's my conclusion, that Asaph's reality-driven expression is a model for stepping successfully off our slippery slopes. The slippery slope, yes, may feel intensely overwhelming, like it is for John the Baptist. And let's touch on this quickly. Go to Matthew 11, and I want you to see how this New Testament example actually illustrates what Asaph was writing in that psalm a thousand years before John lived. But when you go to Matthew 11, you see one of those classic places. It's New Testament, and obviously it's a different, whole different context. But I, and, and, it, and as we look at it today, we might want to think about this, that Matthew 11 brings to us one of the classic moments where a true follower of the Lord and a, and a gifted, mightily used servant of God could say what Psalm 73 said, my foot almost stumbled. <laughs> my foot nearly slipped. Look at Matthew 11. Verse 1, Jesus had finished instructions to his disciples. He departed from there to teach and preach in the cities. Now when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by his disciples. And the question that comes in verse 3 of Matthew 11 is a similar dilemma as what Asaph, a whole different setting, a thousand years apart, but a similar dilemma. He says to the Lord Jesus, are you the expected one or shall we look for someone else? Now, now that is remarkable on the face of it, but even all the more remarkable as we know in that this is John the Baptist who was the forerunner of the Lord, the proclaimer, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And it is not because of his imprisonment that he asked this question, I don't believe. It is because, think of it now, the ministry of Jesus is touching the lives of individuals in incredible ways, and yet if one thought of the kingdom of God coming as something that was going to radically change the culture and the society and the governing systems, it hadn't happened, at least yet, right? So John is, is sending a query. Now, I've heard some portray this, I think, in more deep disillusionment than it really is. I don't believe that John is, like, profoundly disillusioned. I believe John is intrigued and probably somewhat perplexed. We don't know the level of his emotional condition, but we do know the question. Look at the question again. Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Quick uh, sidebar here. I always think it's important when we look at Bible characters not to try to overread into the drama of what is there. 
Because sometimes we can come to our own preferred conclusion that's not really in the text. We're a text-driven church. And as we seek to be students of the Word of God, we realize there are some things you can conclude by implication. There's some things you just have to put your hands up and say, I'm just not sure about that. So we don't know what, because God's Word doesn't tell us exactly what John's emotional or psychological framework was, but it does show us that there was a deep, discordant question taking place. Why is there not more outward proof (laughs) of this great kingdom that, uh, that I had proclaimed when I said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and you could also say, just as well, that what, rather than deep distress, that John is, is seeking, like a child of God should always seek, to say, Lord, give me clarity about what I don't fully understand. Now, the significance of this is obvious, because that baptisms by John were a sign of the coming kingdom. <laughs> and and uh, the kingdom of God understood to be an inbreaking of God's future into the present tense cir- circumstance. John's assignment was to say what? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his paths straight. And when later questioned after baptizing Jesus and after Jesus had begun his ministry, but before John was imprisoned, in John 3, 20 and 21, he was asked, why is it that, uh, that, that the, the followers are going after Jesus and they're baptizing more than you? Jesus said, John said, he must increase, I must decrease. There is absolutely no question that John understood long before he went to prison, that John understood that Christ's entire future would eclipse everything he did. The the sheer magnitude of who Jesus is would not only outshine John, it would make John obsolete. But when he's imprisoned, I believe that like Asaph, think of it like this, like Asaph in Psalm 73, John the Baptist had real questions, and he knew who to ask. And my message to you today is, so do you. You know who to ask. Asaph said, I went into the sanctuary, the dwelling place of Almighty God, between the wings of the cherubim. And I understood. I understood. It didn't answer every dilemma. The wicked still seemed to be prospering, but I understood their final accountability. And I understood that God is guiding me in his counsel. Now, John, a thousand years later, goes to Jesus. (laughs) And the answer of Jesus does something astonishing here. As often happened with the answers of Jesus, he doesn't always answer the question in the way, exact way we might want it answered. He addresses the real heart issue. In his answer in Matthew 11, Jesus honors the desert firebrand, John. He honors him for his zeal. He explains that among among people born of women, (laughs) among all, all who have crossed this 
this, uh, this, this planet, that John's role in life was remarkable. He's honored for his zeal. And then he's anchored in a new and unshakable confidence. Two parts of Jesus' answer. He says, go back to John and tell him, very simply, go back to John and tell him what you've heard and seen. And what was that? <laughs> he said that, look in your Bible in the text at verse 5, the blind receive sight and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. And the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. In that answer, what we find in the Lord Jesus is describing what I, I refer to as the inbreaking of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is inbreaking. It's bringing the, a foreshadowing of the great future of God's completed plan into the present tense. And in the present tense ministry of Jesus, that meant the sign miracles that attended the identity of our Lord and Messiah. So everything Jesus did was, was to bring into focus how this kingdom, how the rule of God is going to transform all things eventually beginning with the hearts of people. And then on the, the comforting side for John, he says, of all who have ever lived, none is greater than John. So in that, that's a, a, an intriguing statement because what we're about to see is Jesus uses that to then contrast or to magnify the value of being a born-again Christian. Think of it like this. In Matthew 11, verses 4 to 6, Jesus, each aspect of the life of Jesus brings God's kingdom directly to us. He says, the blind receive sight, the lame are healed, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed. In every aspect of the earthly ministry of Jesus, God's kingdom is seen in the lives of real people. But it is to illustrate another truth, and that is the truth that as great as John was in his role you might say that John the Baptist was the last in the line of the Old Testament prophets. He finished, he finished the prophetic preparation for the coming of Messiah. In that sense, Jesus refers to John as the greatest. He completes the journey. He's the final forerunner of the coming king. But that then makes this even more dramatically powerful, and that is that after death, burial, and resurrection of the Savior, Christ now gives each of you an even higher privilege. This is the amazing part of it, that, that he says in that text, <laughs> he says, now, he was great, he was great indeed, but look at the last part of verse 11. In your own Bible, look at 11.11 of Matthew. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom is now greater than John. The wording clearly means that the privileges you receive as a child of God are far greater than even what the greatest of the Old Testament prophets experienced. And I, and, and I think of it like this, that in the cross and the resurrection, that Jesus now elevates the value of the individual 
as the kingdom of God comes directly to us. Now, we can find ourselves in this, like John, like Asaph, where our foot is almost slipped. We, are, we have been weary in the journey. We have been running the race. We have been believing God. We have been trusting God. I, I talked with somebody just this week in a, a time of prayerful counsel who had experienced something that was so unfair, so unfair, it made, it, it made me angry <laughs> to see what this person had been through. But as we pray, we talk about it, we look in the Word, what, guess what happens? You look in the Word of God and you find out, guess what? It doesn't diminish this one problem, does it? But all who will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says. And Jesus told the disciples in John 16, he said, these things I've spoken unto you, that in me, come on, just for a moment, say, in Christ. Say it one more time. In me, he said, you will have peace. In this world, you, yes, you will have all types of trouble, including betrayal by people who call themselves a follower. This is not easy stuff, friends. I'm touching today, not as specifically as we could, of course, but I'm touching the issue of profound disillusionment that people have with their Christian experience. And I'm saying that all of us have points where we're vulnerable for our foot slipping because of the layer upon layer of hurt the layer upon layer of someone's disappointment, the layer upon layer of what feels like injustice. It often is. But here's what we often forget. We're compatriots with the apostle who said, press down but not forsaken. Beaten up but not crushed. Why? He said, because the life of Jesus in this earthen vessel is indomitable. It is resilient. It is thriving, Paul said. Paul could put it this way. He said, the outward man is, is getting beat up in all kinds of ways, but the inward man is being renewed day by day as we look, not at the things which our eyes see, but at that which is unseen. When Asaph in Psalm 73 went into the dwelling place of God in Old Testament imagery, he, he perceived God is here. When John the Baptist sends emissaries to the Messiah to say, are you the one who was to come? Or should we look for another? <laughs> Jesus sends him back word and says, John, John ran his race. John did his task. John finished his course. And John's okay. John's going to be okay. Because even in martyrdom, John went instantly into his eternal reward. Jesus is talking about what it means now to see as a child of God, you are elevated. Your tennis shoes are on a higher plane now. And if we had any question about it, Give me a little few minutes to, to, to wrap this up. Look at that 12th verse, probably one of the most, one of the most, uh, just an awesome statement in Scripture, and you'll find it in your Bible. I want to give you three, uh, 
translations, it's crucial. I'd like you to go home today with Matthew eleven twelve ringing in your ears, though it's an odd verse, I agree, I understand. But Jesus said <laughs> that um, the day from the days of John the Baptist until now, kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Now, in, in, a, in a phrase, I summarize this here on the screen so you can see it. In a phrase, it means a persevering determination. And like the faith exercise we talked earlier about this month, this persevering determination is the part that the Holy Spirit allows us to do. We know Christ has done, Christ has accomplished all that's ever needed for our, for our salvation. Christ the Lord, um, there is no, I need no other argument, I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died, but that he died for me. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Amen? We know this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God the Father made him the Son who knew no sin to be the sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 2.8 and 9, By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But these verses, like Matthew 11.12, are talking about the internal dynamic of the Holy Spirit working in the heart of a child of God. It's a persevering determination. And when it's called violence, in an English translation, that violence word is translating something so rich in the Greek language that carrying it over into English gives us a challenge. And that is, it is so strong. It's so strong. What strong, Pastor? I'll tell you what's strong, the power of God in you to help you push beyond your barriers and your discouragements. Now see, if you summarize it or think of it like this, we could think of it this way. There are two dilemmas that we've looked at today, but there's one cure. The dilemma in Psalms was, why do the wicked appear to thrive? And the dilemma in Matthew is, why this delay in the visible power of God's kingdom? Two dilemmas, a thousand years apart, but the cure is the same. And what is the cure? Jesus Christ, our risen, conquering king, said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father but me. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I am the bread from heaven. I am the resurrection and the life. The tension that affects most of us is the present tense struggle that Asaph had when he saw the wicked thriving, and that John the Baptist had when he didn't see the visible kingdom. And the answer in, our, in the tension of our present tense is Christ, our King. This is exactly what the epistle to the Colossians says in different words. Paul wrote to the Colossians and said, we can give thanks to the Father who qualified us to become partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. And he said in Colossians 1.13 that because of God's great plan through Christ 
He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. In that epistle, the apostle puts into post-resurrection wording what we're reading in pre-Calvary wording here, and that is the kingdom of God is coming toward you. Kingdom of God is alive. Kingdom of God is the reign of our Savior, and the determined are, are pressing into it. A segment from a scholar by the name of Isaac Rottenberg capturing this, the meaning of kingdom in the gospel, says the kingdom of God does not find its source and essence in this world. Instead, it enters as a breakthrough of the power of God's future transforming the world. That's kind of what, in a more scholarly way, this is what kingdom means in the gospels. It's the inbreaking of God's future, <laughs> the whole future plan, but in, we might say, in seed form. And as I thought about that, I thought what we should go home today realizing is that inbreaking is now through you. Because <laughs> that's what Peter meant when he said in 1 Peter 2 9, we, you, are now a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, proclaiming the, the glory of Him who brought you out of darkness. So, so before you go, I want you to think of how that 12th verse of Matthew 11 kind of capsulizes this fact. The dilemma that Asaph had, seeing the wicked thrive, the dilemma that John the Baptist had, seeing the kingdom is not yet visible, Christ himself is the answer, our risen Lord and Savior, calls us to know him, to grow in him. And two quick translations of that 12th verse that I think help to illuminate it are, are this one, and the Amplified Bible puts it this way, Matthew eleven twelve. remember that, it's a share in the heavenly kingdom is sought for with most ardent zeal and intense exertion. In other words, this is not works, this is the heart, this is the inner being responding to God, and it's like the beautiful expressions we have in the Bible of worship. We Worship the Father in spirit and in truth because our hearts have been touched by his redeeming grace. And then the NIV and the New English Bible, kind of joining their phrases here, tells us his kingdom is forcefully advancing and the forceful are seizing it. Now, why should we grasp, why should we leave today with Matthew eleven twelve ringing in our ears? It is because the church today is suffering, Christians at large are suffering from a, a, a real epidemic <laughs> of passivity. And the passivity is reaching pandemic proportions. <laughs> we got our own pandemic going, and that is the pandemic of passivity. It is hanging back. It is resignation. It is K-sara-sara, whatever will be, will be. And it easily migrates into the critic's seat where we spend way too much time scorning, criticizing, throwing stones at what we don't like, whether it's in the church or in the culture. It's, and it's wasted energy. 
and here's what comes through loud and clear to me from Asaph going into the presence of the Lord in Psalm 73 and John the Baptist getting that great takeaway from Jesus. Kingdom of God is advancing and it's going to take. I think he said this, by the way, because he was using John the Baptist as his exhibit A. If you are pursuing passionately your love for Christ like John did, you would understand a whole lot more. Because John is a living, flaming picture of persevering determination. And Jesus, I think, in Matthew eleven twelve 12, is saying, in the kingdom, as we grow in Christ, as we grow in our faith, we will benefit from putting fresh, passionate energy into the things that he's already made accessible to us. Sometimes we're wishing for God to give us an opportunity out there when we're neglecting simple things like, like, like worshiping, like bringing our requests to the Lord, by, like meditating in Scripture, like, like opening the Word of God and having that quality quiet time to just progressively read through passages of Scripture. Maybe journaling, responding to the Lord in, in His presence. And, and, uh, and, and this gives us an invitation to go with fresh energy, fresh awakening, fresh awareness, fresh perspective. Yes, many of us have had our foot in a place where we're just about to slip. But the Lord says, I'm here waiting for you. Come to me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that in our lives is we could find ourselves maybe like Asaph in the Psalms thinking, why does it look like the wicked get away with so much and that it looks like oftentimes those who don't even fear God are prospering more or having an easier time of it? Lord, we confess like Asaph, oftentimes our perspective is jaded. We don't see the whole picture, but we are we're vulnerable to slip into jealousy or envy or resentment. And Lord, I pray that today, understanding the grace that you give us in Christ our Lord, that, that we could joyously respond to this, this obscure challenge, but wonderful illustration, that your kingdom is rapidly moving even now. We are not in a static kingdom. We're in a kingdom that is expanding, growing, touching people's lives. The, the church itself is in an expansion business. We're called to expand our reach of love, of care, of giving, of joyously coming alongside those who are hurting. And Lord, we pray that you'll show each of us how in a new way, with fresh energy, fresh zeal, fresh fervency, to say yes to each opportunity you place before us. In the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Light of the world, you step down.